Good morning. Thank you, Bridget. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, uh, January 25th. Uh, 2017, uh, we have a, um, a really great um, speaker today, and I'm, I'm thrilled at his title, State of the, <laughs> State of the Union. Um, Dr. Barry, I've been, I've been a fan of Dr. Barry's work since I can't remember whether it was the Children's Hospital Association or the department chairs you presented to a couple years back. And, um, and Sean will get to introduce him. Uh, I'm thrilled that Sean Ralston was able to invite him. But given the State of the Union and given that there was an actual inauguration, five days ago, and there's uh, lots of political activity. Um, Steve Chapman, who's the incoming president of New Hampshire Pediatric Society, does want to update us all on a, a couple of important potential advocacy efforts that you could take um, for bills that are in front of the New Hampshire legislature. So, Steve? Well, thanks, Keith. So there, there are a number of bills, a slew of bills, that are coming to hearing the New Hampshire State Legislature this week and next week that could really affect kids, removing fluoride from water, allowing smoking in restaurants again, um, cutting funding back for um, at-risk newborns and medically complex kids, um, home visiting funding. Um, Cutting back on funding for uh, reproductive top options um, for our teenagers. Um, just a whole slew of bills. I don't have a specific ask at this point, except please pay attention. Please be willing to speak. And if anyone is interested in a particular issue or would like to work through the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, um, we do try to get people to testify um, in these hearings. Um, so, Time for pediatricians to speak up. Our voices are really listened to in this state. Um, and uh, thanks, Keith, for inviting us. So pay attention. Um, you may not see Chad or DH take official positions on some of these because the way our legislature works, we would only perhaps serve to draw more attention to some of them if we took an official position and give them more merit than they deserve. Our uh, Frank McDougall and Matthew Oud, who came to us in December, know that some of these will get a hearing because of the way our legislature work but won't go beyond committees. It's scary that they're going to get a hearing, but they're pretty confident that at least the Indoor Clean Act won't get out of committee and, and won't get a, a floor vote or anything like that. So use your individual voices and don't be disappointed if you don't see that we're not taking official positions because we don't want to activate the opposition, uh, quite frankly, and give it more legs than, than we might. So before um, Dr. Ralston and Dr. Berry get on next week, Dr. Sullivan, graduating fellow from neonatology, kicks off our graduating um, house staff talks in February and um, register for the 27th annual Pediatric Dartmouth Conference at Mount Washington coming up the end of uh, February. We're looking at February already. So um, we've already sort of introduced, but Dr. Ralston will introduce Dr. Barry. I'll keep it really short so you have time to actually talk. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jay Berry. Um, Jay comes to us from Boston, from that little tiny hospital down there um, in, in Boston that you guys might have, may have heard of. Um, but more importantly, he's from Alabama, which as the token Southerner here, I always have to um, to, um, to, to cheer the, the Southerners. Um, he's from Alabama by way of primary children's in Utah, and he's a very well-known researcher within the community of um, pediatric health services researchers and um, pediatric hospitalists. He's done a lot of work on children with medical complexity and um, also on measuring the quality of care, both for um, pediatric inpatients and children with medical complexity. So please welcome Dr. Jay Berry. Thank you. 
status so that they can see better. Awesome. Sean, thank you for the introduction. Uh, Dr. Louds, the Department of Pediatrics, thanks for having me here. Uh, for all you guys for showing up today. Uh, I'm very excited to talk with you about a population of kids that I care very, very, very deeply about. So the goal of this talk over the next 40 minutes or so is pretty simple. Like, I just want to convey the current healthcare experiences and happenings of children in the US who are living with some pretty debilitating complex chronic illnesses. I'm going to go through four different topic areas with you. First, we'll talk about the prevalence of these children and the impact that they're having on the healthcare system, on our children's hospitals, on their families. We'll talk about different activities and approaches to managing their care. We'll then go into a bit of the relationship about that, the quality of care, that care management, and how that relates to containing healthcare cost and spending. And then we'll wrap things up by talking about some federal and state healthcare policies that are emerging or currently in practice to try to enable care for these children. So a few disclosures. Um, throughout this story, I'm going to bombard you with a bunch of data. I'm going to do it mostly up front so when your attention span kind of weighs, you know, wanes near the end, you'll still be able to concentrate a bit. Um, I'm, I care very emotionally about these children, and you're going to see that kind of coming through as this talk goes. And I do think it's an emotional story. Um, you can't have a talk called State of the Union and not embed some politics in there. I promise to tread lightly, depending on your own personal convictions. And there's going to be some choir preaching. There's so many of you here in gin peds and hospital medicine and otherwise who are doing a fantastic job caring for these kids. And you know so much of what I'm going to talk about, but I hope that you're able to walk away with some new pearls and info that can help you. I also just want to quickly acknowledge the funders of a lot of work that you're going to be hearing about, especially the Children's Hospital Association, which has been so phenomenal with all of their data and analytics team to propel our knowledge about children with medical complexity. And most importantly, all of the parents and clinicians, quality improvement specialists, hospital administrators, researchers, policy folks who've really done a phenomenal job at mentoring me through a lot of the projects that you'll hear about. All right, so let's kick things off talking about the prevalence and the impact of children with medical complexity on the U.S. healthcare system. So I want you to think about this clinical case as we go through this talk. Think about a 14-year-old kiddo with cerebral palsy who has the following comorbidities. Shunned hydrocephalus, neurogenic bladder, scoliosis, hip dysplasia, asthma, reflux, epilepsy, diabetes insipidus, and osteopenia. All right, this kid also has some functional limitations relies on a G-tube, orthotics, caffeine supplies, and an augmentative device for communication. The family also has some social and environmental things going on. They're struggling financially. They're also struggling at home to provide direct caregiving for this child. Now, there's so many attributes in here that may make you think this kid is complex. And complexity is really in the eye of the beholder. But for me, as a general pediatrician, seeing this kid on one of my patient panels showing up for the day with a fever, or this kid's on my hospitalist service for pneumonia or whatnot, I'm going to probably think about this kid a little bit differently than I am a healthy kiddo. Beyond those attributes, though, the healthcare team of this kid is also pretty darn complex. This kid's got like 17 different providers involved in his care. A bunch of specialists, community players, therapists, school nurse, case management, primary care, dentistry, etc. All of these people are practicing in different locations. The care is kind of fragmented across different settings. And the parents are sort of caught in the middle of this, trying to figure out how to manage what all these people are doing. Beyond that, the health services of this child is also pretty complex. 
So this kid's on eight different medications. If I can get this thing forwarded. Uh-oh, I think we're locked. <coughs> How about that? There we go. Eight meds, has had about 10 surgeries throughout his life, mostly elective neurosurgery stuff, orthopedics, 15 acute care hospitalizations, 45 emergency department visits, 150 outpatient clinic visits, and like over 600 telephone calls to all the clinics that this kid's involved with. Like the health record size of this kid now in the chart is like 2.4 gigs. All right, like it's so large when you pull it up here, like the, the air traffic control tower in Manchester has a power surge <laughs> before it like kicks in. It takes like 20 minutes to load. And just to give you an idea, I'm not embellishing the size of this record, which some kids actually are, that, that's equivalent or more than like a bunch of novels thrown together, including John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, I just bring up Fifty Shades of Grey because recently, on patient-centered rounds for a complex kid, we all walked into the room with like 15 people, all in white coats, you know, rounding with the team, and we're trying to present the case. We realize the mom's not really paying attention, and someone looks over, and she He's reading Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and so the medical student said, would you like for us to give you a few minutes? And she said, how about 15? Then she looked at the book and said, make it 20. It was awesome. So when I think about children with medical complexity on a population level, I think about kids with the following attributes. Children that have a lifelong life-limiting chronic condition that's severe enough that it affects multiple organ systems of the body. And it's severe enough that it really does impair the children's functioning, their ability to eat, to breathe, to digest food, to walk, to talk, to communicate. These children have serious health care needs. A lot of them are on tons of medications, lots of different durable medical equipment to try to optimize their functional status. They're engaging the healthcare system all the time to get those healthcare needs met. They also get sick very frequently. So by nature, they become high resource users. Now, you can think of different chronic conditions that on the severe end of the spectrum are going to fit the bill for those attributes. Cerebral palsy, spastic quadriplegia, complex congenital heart disease, cystic fibrosis, diabetes, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, if you were to add up all the individual prevalences for those conditions combined and just carve out the kids that you really think are outliers for complexity, we think that the true epidemiology of these children across the U.S. is way less than 1% of all children. It's probably on the order of like two to four per thousand, something like that. But because these kids, oh, and that amounts to about 400,000 children across the U.S. But because these kids engage in the health system so much, they account for about a third of all pediatric health care costs. And that's roughly about $650 billion annually across the U.S. That's a hard number to contextualize. That's about 2%, we think, of the total health care spending for all patients, elderly, adults, everybody in the U.S. So that total spending is around $3.2 trillion in the U.S. Now, the breakdown of the spending is very interesting to think about. So of that $650 billion annually, 1% goes to home care, so home nursing, PCA, things like that. 2% goes to primary care, 3% in the ED, 13% for medications, 25% for specialty care, 
and about 47% per hospital care. So a lot of folks look at this allocation of spending and think maybe we're not spending where we should. If there was more spending on primary care, maybe we could keep the kids out of the hospital more and that hospital spending would come down. But hospital care is obviously the major driver for spending for these children. And that's definitely where I felt in the children's hospitals that I've trained, I'm sure you are here, where these children are accounting for about 55% of all the inpatient cost within children's hospitals across the United States. And when you look at particular types of admissions, like a 30-day readmission following a prior one, an index admission, readmission's hot policy topic, these children are accounting for about 85% of those costs across the U.S. <clears throat> so the message here is small population size and a ginormous impact on the healthcare system. The story doesn't quite end there, however, because over the latter half of the last decade, Children with medical complexity, shown in the red line here, were the fastest growing population of patients to use our U.S. children's hospitals. Their population size increased by about 35% or so from 2005 to 2009, which was a much higher rate of rise than children without a chronic condition, shown in the blue line, and children with less complex chronic conditions, shown in the other lines. I think it's important just to take a few minutes to talk about the reasons why these children are having such a big impact in the hospital. Let's go through some of those. So the first, so a lot of these children are just surviving longer than they, than they used to, which then opens up the possibility of them being hospitalized just because they're alive, right? So very low birth weight infants, extremely premature infants, infants born with severe congenital anomalies, now making it out of the NICU because of fantastic NICU care and surgical care. But they're going on to survive now, and they're developing comorbidities as they survive, respiratory, digestive, musculoskeletal stuff, which increases their odds of those things being exacerbated and them coming out of the hospital. Secondly, I think we're operating more on these children now than we were in the past, sometimes aggressively. So one storyline here, these are national data of rates of G-tubes and trachs um, over the last decades in children with complex neurologic disease, so cerebral palsy, spastic quadriplegia, muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, spina bifida, congenital brain malformations, right? and 25, 35% increase in the use of these devices in these children. Hospitalizations required to put them in, and then all the malfunctions, infections, and things that happen with them after they're in cause the children to come back to the hospital more and more. Third, these children's health are, are so fragile, sometimes at baseline, that any kind of transition for them is tenuous. And just being in the hospital and transition, transitioning home um, can be a period of time when their health unravels. We know that about 20 to 30 percent of children with medical complexity hospitalized for our children's hospitals experience a readmission within 30 days of a prior one, unplanned, having to come back. And, and those readmission rates are the same as elderly Medicare beneficiaries. It's pretty high, actually. We also know that we're probably not doing the best job that we can to actually prepare these families and the children to go home and to stay healthy at home. So a few years ago, we surveyed all of our complex children discharged from our hospital service in Boston. And we asked the families a few days after discharge, how healthy do you think your child was? Were they healthy enough to actually go home? Did you understand how to manage your child's care and all that? About 10 to 15% of the families that we had discharged said, my child wasn't healthy enough to go home, and I don't really understand how to manage their care. 
the odds of readmission for families answering in that way was in the two to three range, which was such a higher odd or predictor of readmission than the, the number of chronic conditions that the child had, the type, whether they were relying on technology assistance with G-tubes and trachs and other things, a major driver having the children and families prepared to go home. And also, a lot of these families, as you know, at home are almost running like many ICUs trying to keep their children alive and healthy. They're doing so much work at home. And I just don't feel like we have the post-acute care, the home nursing care that's sort of out there available to really help these kids, especially after hospitalization. A lot of research sort of unfolding with this uh, currently to try to look at rates of these children, how often they use these types of facilities. A lot of them are just unavailable in certain states. And I wish that we had more of them because I really think they could help the children. There's so many kids as well that don't just come into the hospital once and are readmitted once and that's sort of it for them, but they're coming in over and over and over again. I don't know if you guys are experiencing these frequent flyer types of kids here <clears throat> where you don't have to even open up the chart. You just know the kid because they're in so much. We certainly feel it in Boston. Across our U.S. Children's Hospitals, we did a recent study just carving out the kids that were hospitalized five or more times in a year, five or more admissions. These kids were coming in a median of 38 days apart into the hospital, one admission after another. Only 3% of all U.S. children hospitalized are hospitalized five or more times in a year, so small population size. But because they're admitted so much, they account for a fifth of all admissions and nearly a quarter of all hospital charges in our children's hospitals. So these frequent flyers are having a big impact. And finally, which is really the crux of the talk as we go forward, is just thinking about this notion that some of the hospital care for these children is occurring because the outpatient healthcare system is just not quite equipped and sufficient as it could be to optimize the health of the children. So, so many of the kids are living with chronic conditions that aren't as controlled as they could be with technologies that aren't monitored well enough to prevent them from malfunctioning and having infections and whatnot, and having acute illnesses that just aren't promptly addressed enough to mitigate the severity of them to preclude the kids from needing to come into the hospital. There are two data points within this line of talk. One is that from a lot of state Medicaid data that we've been analyzing recently, we're finding that about 40% of children with medical complexity are not having an annual well-child visit with their primary care pediatrician. They're bouncing around with their specialists, they're seeing all other folks, but they're not having that visit, which I think can be so important. Relatedly, about 44% of children with medical complexity data from the National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs reports that these children have one or more major unmet health care needs reported by their families. So they've got a medication that's hung up with prior auth somewhere. They've got home nursing hours that they can't fill, therapy hours that they can't get approved, durable medical equipment that's hung up somewhere, major, major unmet health care needs. And we all know, as you guys are feeling this as well, I'm sure, is that so much of the brunt of the gaps in care for these children are being picked up by their families because the clinicians really aren't able to do all of it, right? So we're placing this really hefty caregiving burden on the families to pick up the slack and to get the kids what they need from fantastic work by Utathayan and Jim Perrin and recent work by Mark Schuster, we know that many of these families are spending 20 hours or more a week at home providing direct caregiving for the families and also picking up the ball for care coordination stuff, communicating between providers, et cetera. Many of the families are, are losing their jobs by doing this. They're having marital discord, emotional and physical health consequences. It takes a big toll on the families. Estimates of if we were able to get these families back into the workforce 
and the jobs that could be created from that and the payment from that, from this recent work from Mark Schuster, they estimate about $18 billion that could be out there for some of these families if they were able to regain employment. And if we had home nurses that were going in, or PCA people, or other folks that could help provide the direct home caregiving to the, to the children, that's possibly estimated around $36 billion in jobs for those folks. So I really hope that our current administration, Federal Congress, may have a, you know, a sense of these numbers. If they're thinking about building walls around certain borders of the country, they may want to think about allocating resources to other jobs that may be really meaningful for children. Just my two cents on that. <laughs> All right. Are you guys still with me? Are you good? All right. So let's take a step back now and think about different ways to manage the care of these children, different activities and approaches, a much more higher level, hierarchical look at this. So a few years ago in our own complex care clinic, we sat down and we said, all right, what are we trying to do for every kid in the clinic, regardless of whatever diagnosis they come in with or whatever attributes that lead them to being complex? We articulated this. We said, you know, as best we can, we want to try to optimize the health and quality of life of every kid, knowing that we can't make it perfect, but let's try. We want to minimize the severity of acute illnesses that the children encounter, the number of times they experience chronic condition exacerbations. We want to minimize their pain and suffering and their family caregiving burden. At the same time, we want to maximize their functional status their cognition development, their time away from the hospital, and their, and their time at home and in school. So then we said, well, what are some pillars of ideal care that we think every child deserves? And we came up with these. So we said, one, every child deserves care that's at least managed by one provider, at least one, who's knowledgeable of the child's overall health and well-being. Right? I mean, it's like the one person who's going to stand up and say, all right, I've got 17 people in this child's health care team. This kid's got eight different comorbidities, 10 meds, everything else. Like, I'm going to try to wrap my head around all of that and to keep track of it, even if a lot of it is outside of the training of my clinical proficiency. But I'm going to give it a shot. Second, the care's got to be coordinated among the child's team members for making decisions. All right, this is so easier said than done. But if orthopedic surgery for our kid with cerebral palsy said, you know what, <clears throat> our scoliosis is really bad, our Cobb angle has hit this certain threshold, we're going to fuse this kid's spine. And they just decide to go do it. They schedule, and not to knock any orthopedic surgeons currently in the room, they decide they're going to go ahead and schedule this thing without sort of communicating with the rest of the healthcare team about whether A, maybe it should be done or not, or B, if it is going to be done, how to optimize the care of the kid. If they were to do that across the board and let everybody know, maybe pulmonology would stand up and say, no effing way, this kid's got undiagnosed sleep apnea, it's really terrible, we've tried to start BiPAP at home, but the family won't do it, the pulmonary health is just not there, neurology says seizures are out of control, the GI team says this kid's got a slipness and fund application, and if you, if you straighten the spine, it's going to make reflux worse. But if all those conversations start to come out, then maybe perioperatively you really do a better job of getting the kids safe and healthy for surgery. Third, the care's got to be relentless in meeting the child's health care needs in a timely manner, right? I mean, so many of these kids, are their health care needs are not coming in for an otitis, script for a mox, and we're done. It's can't find home nurses to get into the home to take care of this child. They've been approved for 40 hours. We can only fill eight. The family's falling apart. How do I tank up those home nursing hours? Hours of phone calls, trying to find people, letters to the state, like all that work to try to do, and it's so easy to give up and just not do it. 
Fourth, the carrier's got to be proactive in making plans to optimize the children's health and, and quality of life. So this is thinking to the future about what's going to make this child sick and how can we put plans in place to deal with that ahead of time. For our kid with CP, our clinical case, you may say, look, this kid's going to have three aspiration pneumonias this year, two UTIs. Every time that happens, the kid's seizure threshold is lower, so we're going to get into some seizure exacerbation stuff. Like, let's put in plans on how to treat that stuff and get on top of it quickly and try to keep the kid out of the hospital and keep things going. Finally, the care's got to be access accessible, especially for health problems that require urgent attention. So, I personally don't think that the emergency department should really be the go-to site for these kids when they have urgent health care problems of any kind, even the mild stuff. Like, I just think that primary care and outpatient care, folks that are able, settings that are able to dedicate sometimes hours of trying to sort through an urgent health care problem is what these kids need, especially if they really have a long-standing, nice relationship with the patient and family. All right, so with that ideal sort of care pillar stuff in mind, think about our healthcare team for our child with cerebral palsy and all the different players there. Are there any of them here that sort of stand up in your mind as being a go-to for who might step up and take charge to really manage the child's care? So let's just go through a few different examples and kind of talk through it. So this is a kid with cerebral palsy who has an underlying neurologic disease, has some epilepsy. So what about neurology? So neuro may be very equipped to do the seizure, spasticity stuff, but their clinical training and their proficiency may be not set to set them up as a field and a group of clinicians to really want to take charge of everything else, all right? Which is not, no knock against them. It's just sort of the way it is. Now, if this were a child with cystic fibrosis and you had pulmonology or nephrotic syndrome and nephrology. I mean, there are definitely other specialty and chronic condition pairings, I think, where the specialists really do try to manage the kid all the way around and even step out of their specialty a bit to manage other organ systems, which is phenomenal. Sometimes primary care physicians do raise their hand to take care of these kids, which I absolutely love. And there's some phenomenal examples of that happening. I know you guys are doing that here in your clinic with your care managers, which is fantastic. A few things in the literature to think about for those of you that might want to read up on some of this. Um, Judy Palfrey, Pat Casey, Ruth Stein's work out of Boston and Little Rock, Arkansas, and the Bronx, respectively showing how primary care can really take charge for children with medical complexity. I know the Boston work well just because it's in my backyard, but all these studies really show you sort of how to set up the ideal medical home for children with medical complexity, right? All of them have the same flavors. Identify, have some type of identification process of identifying the kids, and then assign extra personnel beyond physicians a lot of times to help meet their health care needs, nurse practitioners, care managers, even parent consultants, other parents of children with medical complexity to come in and help the other parents. Have them come in for lengthy office visits, which sometimes can take hours. This is not a 15-minute deal. Write care plans, individualized health summaries of the child's past medical history, their meds, all that stuff. Write out contingency plans and do what you can to integrate with the specialist in order to manage their care. All right. Now, that's all easier said than done. And there's so many primary care practices, I think, that just say, you know what, We're, we just can't do that. Uh, we're just not equipped to have those resources to put those things into place. And other programs have said, and we really want to have more embedded care with the specialists because we rely on them so much for medical decision making from the primary care side. 
There are some phenomenal examples out there of multidisciplinary clinics, these hybrid medical homes where specialists have embedded themselves to help. One great example is the University of Texas Houston Clinic, high-risk children's clinic, where Ricardo Mascara is a pediatric pulmonologist. He's embedded himself and other pediatric pulmonologists into the primary care clinic along with some ID guys. And they really work very hard to have this rapid response system to stay on top of the children's urgent health care needs, which a lot of the times end up being respiratory and ID related regardless of whatever chronic conditions the child bears. They give the families their cell phone numbers. So that's the first call for the family. It's not to an administrator in the clinic or triage to a nursing line. It goes directly to the physician on call that day to triage the problem. They do that 24-7. They get the kids in for urgent visits around the clock whenever they can. They do these weekly case reviews of their contingency planning and how well they were able to keep kids out of the ED and the emergency department. It's just a really nice system. Now, that PCP specialty integration is great, uh, but it's not definitely not the mainstay, I think, of what's happening. Additional chef in the kitchen on top of the child's existing healthcare team to try to manage all of it. All right? And this is like a consultative medical home for children with medical complexity. So this ends up being a medical home that's exclusive for these children. It's a clinic full of complex children, all right? Not a healthy kid there. A phenomenal example of such a clinic is the Children's Hospital Wisconsin Special Needs Program run by John Gordon, who was a pediatric ICU doc who practiced there for about 20 years and said, you know what, I feel like I can have a better impact on the health and lives of the children that are showing up in our ICU all the time if I leave it and go outpatient and start this program. The families love this guy because he's not afraid of anything. He'll start ECMO impressors at home if he could to keep these kids out of the hospital. They're spending up to 20 hours a month per patient to manage the children's care. Like, just let that sink in for 20 hours a month per patient. They go everywhere that these children go in the hospital. They're in the ED with them. They're in the hospital with them. They'll go attend specialty visits with the kids. They do home visits. They communicate with everybody. When we ask them, John, like, what's the thing that you do that you think makes the most difference? He says, we arbitrate among competing treatments by the different folks in the clinical team. When surgery wants to stand up and do something and the specialists say no, we help to step in and sort of reconcile that and to get the kid the best care of plan possible. Wisconsin Medicaid and the community agencies love these guys because they know, they have a sense that they're saving them money because they're keeping the kids out of the hospital. But one data point that I want you to remember now as we go forward with this is that this clinic, which serves about 250 or so children, operates on about a $400,000 deficit. I mean, you imagine, of those 20 hours of work that they're doing, how many can they actually bill for, <laughs> right? They're bringing the kids into the clinic for a visit, but all the telephone calls, the chart reviews, everything else that they're doing is just not there. So keep that in mind um, as this talk evolves. So our program in Boston um, has been under development now for about 25 years or so. 
And it has components of all the things that I just described with you. We have sort of a primary care medical home for kids that want to receive their primary care with us. We have some hybrid medical home kind of set up where we've partnered with, uh, with our specialists, especially our surgeons, to create some cerebral palsy and spina bifida, clinic spina bifida I know you guys have here. Um, we also have our consultative medical home for kids that just want to come in and keep their existing primary care doc in other places. Um, we ended up starting our own inpatient service because we sort of wanted to admit kids to ourselves to, to manage them when they're inpatient for their acute health problems. We also have a presence in our ICUs. We have a home visit program as well. We're integrated with anesthesia and surgery and a lot of perioperative care. And we try our best to integrate with all the existing other specialty programs that are out there, which our kids frequently use, our long-term ventilation, short gut, palliative care, bathroom pump, and our epilepsy programs. So currently, we have about 40 personnel across all those clinical service lines serving about 4,000 children. Heavy on the nursing end, heavy on the surgery end over time of our surgeons just saying the complexity of these kids is just out of control. It's hard for us to think about how to manage all the medical comorbidities. Can you help? Um, and so a lot of surgeons embedded in our care, general pediatricians, hospitalists, um, and the list just goes on. Our geographic catchment area of the kids in our clinic is pretty far-reaching. And this, to me, is, is one major limitation of clinics like we have, and which we're seeing develop across children's hospitals nationally. Like, it's great to have something like that at a tertiary care center and these big children's hospitals. But so many of these kids are not living locally. And so when they really do have problems that need to be managed urgently or really trying to help, it's really hard to help from afar. And I think it's unrealistic to have families drive six hours in just for something that they need. And also, myself included in this, I just don't think that folks that tend to practice in these large centers have an idea about what care really is like out in the periphery, and especially in rural areas. And I think a lot of times the things that they recommend and their treatment plans, they're just not feasible or realistic because they don't have a good sense of what's going on. So. In my mind, these consultative medical homes are great, but I think they're sort of a Band-Aid. And I think overall, in the next 20 years or so, if we really do see a developing healthcare system that's fantastic for these children, I think you're going to see a lot of these things go away. Um, and it could be a marker that we really do have a better system. So in my mind, thinking about the community providers and the folks that are very local to where these children reside is where the true innovation lies and the opportunities for innovation to really take care of them especially in regards to case management. Case management really by any type of provider doing it. There are a few fantastic examples of this going on in the US and across the world. In Alabama, also in the Victoria province, um, in Australia, um, and just north in Ontario, all with a similar flavor. Um, of sort of managing these kids very, very locally. Um, as Sean pointed out in my embarrassing introduction, um, I have a history of growing up in Alabama, and so I know this program very well. So I'll just talk about it very briefly. So the state of Alabama decided, the Medicaid program decided to divide itself up into these regions. And then they paid for nursing case managers to be assigned to each region of the state. Those case managers were then deployed to go through and find the complex children who were living in those regions, either through administrative ways or talking with the local docs or whatever. They came up with their list, and then they started to follow these kids. 
The primary care docs loved the case managers so much that they ended up embedding them into their practices. They credentialed them, they gave them physical space to sit in, and they loved it because Medicaid was paying for <laughs> these case managers to be there. But what that ended up doing is that the case managers then actually had access to the primary care health records and could see kids there, and they also had access to all the Medicaid data. So they could follow and figure out when a kid had not renewed their meds or refills were running out, if there were things getting hung up with uh, durable medical equipment somewhere in the Medicaid bureaucracy, they'd help push it through. They sort of knew more about the pool of home nursing and this and that and were able to tweak hours here and there for the kids coordinate all this work with the specialists at the Children's Hospital of Alabama, do home visits, and really, really, really make a great difference in the care for these children there. I just, I just think that's really, really great. Ultimately, at the end of the day, in my mind, it doesn't really matter who stands up, which type of provider, in which setting or whatever, to try to manage the care for these kids. It's just as long as someone does it. I really do think that every child deserves to have their care managed, to have it coordinated, for folks to really work relentlessly to meet their health care needs, to think about what's going to happen in the future that's going to get these kids sick and make plans for it, and to have at least one setting, a go-to, a safety net for these kids when they have urgent health care problems. All right. Are you guys still with me now? Yeah? All right. Now, these sections are going to get shorter and shorter as the talk goes along. You'll notice that. So all that ideal care management stuff is great. But the insurers really want you to, and us, to show them the money, right, of how effective this stuff is. Show it how it has an impact on the child and the family. Show how it might help, this care management might help contain health care costs a bit. So let's talk through that. So there's an emerging body of literature that really does suggest that high-quality care management does have a great impact on the children's health and well-being. It reduces their unmet health care needs because you're taking the time to meet them. It does improve their health and functional status on a variety of, of survey questionnaires and, and instrument batteries. For the family, it increases their knowledge of their child's health, which can be really complicated. I think so many times we just assume that these parents have a level of certain health literacy and understanding all the comorbidities and everything about their children. But this care management helps with that, especially with prognosis. It also helps the family cope with the dire circumstances that your children are facing. It literally reduces the number of hours that families are spending with direct or indirect caregiving for the children at home, and it improves their family satisfaction of care. There's a great systematic review of this in the literature done by A.L. Cohen out of SickKids in Toronto if you want to read more into the details of this. Now, at the same time, high-quality care management will also have an impact on health care resource use. So if you're really trying to manage the care for these kids really well, you may be bringing them back into the clinic over and over again to treat their you know, acute health problems and also just to keep track of everything else that's going on, right? So a lot of these studies show major increases in outpatient clinic visits from being exposed to high-quality care management, as much as 70% from the baseline of these kids, bringing them back to the clinic over and over again. But there's a relationship that people hope is there of if we do that, the kids are sick less frequently, their health is better, so we're keeping them out of the hospital and the ED more. All this prior literature shows that high-quality care management can reduce the number of hospitalizations these children are experiencing by up to 59%. Like their days in the hospital are reduced by 50%. Their ED visits are reduced as much as 55%, right? 
I mean, you look at all of that, and I told you before that 47% of the spending for these children goes to hospital care, 3% to ED care, so half of their total spending goes to these things, and you can knock this down a lot by good care management, right? If so if you're a parent, or you're a clinician involved in caring for these kids, or you're an insurer, and you see these numbers, you're like, heck yeah, like this is awesome. However, if you are a children's hospital CEO, CMO, COO, CFO, if you're the chair of the Department of Pediatrics, like you may look at these numbers and say, okay, hold on a minute. So we're going to invest in some care management program outpatient that's going to lose a half million bucks a year. And then that care management program is going to reduce hospitalizations for these kids and cut it in half. And currently, like, half of our inpatient spending is for these kids. We're going to have empty beds, like we're out of business, like this just does not compute. Please don't do this. <laughs> well, before you get too elated or despondent over those numbers, you have to contextualize them a bit and the methods that were used to generate them. So most of the knowledge that we know and the studies that are out there for these children and their care management, a few are randomized trials, very elegantly done with control groups, nice analysis. But the majority of the studies are these pre-post interrupted time series test designs without a control group where they measure hospitalizations and the frequencies for these ch children, they enroll them in a care management program, they measure the hospitalizations afterwards, and they say, oh, we had this huge decrease. Now, there's a problem in, all, in a lot of these studies in that there's a selection bias for these children and their outcomes because they purposely choose children with medical complexity that had three, four, five or more hospitalizations in that prior measurement period to enroll them in the study. And we're starting to learn that although these kids are hospitalized a lot, and some of them have clusters of hospitalizations, most kids don't stay on that level overall. There's some recent work by Alain Peltz published in Pediatrics that sort of got at this. They carved out a population of children with medical complexity hospitalized across children's hospitals in 2009. All right. Then they went back to 08 and 07 and measured their hospitalizations. Then they went forward to 10 and 11 and measured their hospitalizations. So the kids who were admitted in 2009, they had a median number of hospitalizations of two. But when they tracked them back, they weren't, most of them weren't hospitalized at all. When they tracked them forward, they weren't hospitalized at all either. All right? So they sort of regress back to their mean, if you will, of hospital use. But if you don't have this in mind when you're thinking about this, and you throw on a care management intervention in the middle of it without a control group, it may seem that you've really done a fantastic job decreasing hospitalizations when maybe, maybe that didn't happen as much as you thought that it would. Case in point here, the Congressional Budget Office released a phenomenal report back in 2012 of 34 care management programs for adult Medicare elderly beneficiaries to manage their care. Well, there's a lot of evidence on how to do that, especially on the disease level. Of those 34 programs, they thought that only two across the country were successful. And those programs reduce hospital use by about 10 to 20% for their patients, not the 40 to 60% seen in pediatrics. And in only two of those 34 programs did the cost saved by reducing those hospitalizations exceed the cost that was required to stand up the care management program. So net cost savings. 
The attributes of those two programs on the adult side look very similar to the John Gordon ICU ECMO at Home program that I described from Wisconsin, where they're managing, you know, they're spending 20 hours a month or so managing care for their patients. So I believe that there are cost savings to be had for these children, but I don't think it's probably as extreme as what the literature is showing us. My two cents on this is that I think we really should stay focused on the most important outcomes for these children, which is really to optimize their health to me and to help their families. And I personally think spend the money to go do that. All right? Now just bear with me here. I don't know the numbers exactly for New Hampshire, but based on what we have in Massachusetts as well as Alabama and other states, let's just say that Medicaid is reimbursing us 60 cents on the dollar of what it costs to deliver care for whatever we can actually bill for in the fee-for-service world, which is the minority of the care that we're delivering for these kids anyway. So most of it we're giving them for free. Are they not underspending dramatically already on these kids? If so, do we have to really show them that we're going to contain health care costs? Why can't they just invest in front and give us what we need? Just my two cents. All right. Are you still with me now? You're good. So let's wrap things up talking about state and federal health care policies, which we heard a little bit about from the introduction today about what's going on here, which is not exclusive to the issues that are happening in New Hampshire. This is going on everywhere. You know, health care policy for children with medical complexity, I think, is so important for a number of reasons. And just to state the obvious, I know a lot of you guys are living in this. Private insurers, in so many cases, are just limiting health care access and services to these children just by the way that they've set themselves up. A private insurer, Blue Cross, may have their in-network preferred providers, which does not include an out-of-state surgeon or a specialist or something that the children need, and they can't get it, or the parents have to pay more to get it. Private insurers just may say, you know, we just don't offer home care services at all within our contracting, so we, you have to go somewhere else to get that. Or certain pieces of durable medical equipment, home vents, we just don't do that. We're not in that business. You've got to go somewhere else. So luckily, Medicaid is there for these children to cover a lot of those things, which is phenomenal. Thank you, Medicaid, for being there. But because children have to, some of these children have to rely on it, they're now indirectly relying on the state legislative processes that govern Medicaid and fund it in order to get the care that they need. Now, I know I just mentioned this earlier, but just to say it again, I mean, the cost of managing care for these children currently exceeds dramatically, I think, the payment received by clinicians, especially for Medicaid, to take care of them. So what you've got is a situation, especially where we are, where we're trying to rely on other hospital departments outside of General Peds, which is where we sit, for subsidizing fin our finances, philanthropy, research grants, in order to have the clinical personnel available to take care of the kids. That's very much a band-aided system to me. It's unstable. And I don't think that's what our children deserve. So, the question I always ask myself, and I would hope that nationally this question continues to be out there, is can healthcare policy mitigate the situation and just make it more financially stable to take care of these children? Luckily, there are some examples out there of state Medicaid programs doing some really cool things. So in Michigan, the state Medicaid program is now paying $100 a month per child of, with medical complexity to manage their care. So that's 1200 bucks a year per child. Now that may not seem like a lot of money, but think about this. If you have a registered nurse, they're just estimating, 
with his or her salary, fringe and benefits, not including indirect, maybe costs around 100K a year. If that nurse is billing for 80 kids in this program, it will fully underwrite that cost. Same with the social workers managing 60 children in their cohort. Right? So, I mean, that money, I do think, in the current fee-for-service arrangement, really is infusing new clinical bodies stably into the healthcare system to take care of these children. The way that they bill are for the CPT codes that we all use in outpatient care with, you know, for other things, but there's some awesome CPT codes out there for home visits, multidisciplinary team conferences, telephone calls, care plan, like all that care management-e-like stuff that we're doing that you can reimburse and get paid for, which I think is, is really great. Other states are thinking about outsourcing their Medicaid work to private companies, these Medicaid managed care organizations. Um, I know of which you guys are experiencing a lot of that here. We are as well in Massachusetts. You know, with the idea that, look, we're a state government. We really don't really want to be in the healthcare business. We have money allocated for it, but we're gonna, we want to push off to folks that really know how to do that well, maybe better than we do. So it's not a bad premise to think about. And there are definitely some states and some programs where they're thinking about these kids actively and how they can help them. We enroll them in a managed care organization. They have a case manager that's assigned to them. They do home visits like the Alabama program, other things where it's trying to enable the care for these kids. Unfortunately, there are other states that are taking more of an approach in this managed care of just reviewing the health care costs for these children, which, like per child, their per member per month, per member per year costs can be ginormous. And they're, they're outliers within the managed care organization. So they look at that and they think, where can we slash costs right now for this kid to save money? Let's cut their home nursing hours in half. We'll send the families a letter. They'll get it next week. They can deal with it. Let's just stop covering certain pieces of durable medical equipment, even essential stuff like home vents, all right, that are very expensive. They can go somewhere else if they want to get it, like figure it out. Very cavalier, jarring ways to cut cost. Uh, there's a phenomenal series of articles written by Elizabeth Cohen from CNN on this, from certain states that are doing this, and more on this to come, but this really, really is happening. So this leads really to this premise that should every child with medical complexity, regardless of where they are living, have an equal opportunity to receive the same high-quality care, or an existing system where they live and how their state is approaching Medicaid, if it really is driving their access to care and, secondarily, their health care outcomes, like, is that right? I mean, a lot of work from Dr. Ralston here with all the all-payer claims data showing the variation in care that children receive depending on where they live and data from the National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs asking families how they would rate their own state's health system performance and showing the variation on that. Lighter states here, states with lighter colors here, lower performers, darker blue, higher performers as perceived by the family. New England, thank goodness, overall seems to have to be more on the darker color side, and that's great. But again, I don't think it really matters where a child is born or where they reside. They really should have equal opportunity to have access to high-quality care. Because of the state-by-state -state variation, a few years ago there was a, a nice push to try to have some federal legislation that would help institute managed care for children with medical complexity. I'm sure a lot of you know about this here. But there was actually a bill, H.R. 4930, generated from the House that was specifically on children with medical complexity. This is like the coolest thing to me of all time, to actually have the words children with medical complexity written into draft legislation. 
All right? This bill is called the Advancing Care for Exceptional Kids Act, the ACE Kids Act. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried to read through legislation. It is like the most epilepsy-inducing text. Like you can't figure out what's going on. But my sense of it is that the purpose of the legislation was to try to create these health homes that include this regional group of all clinicians across the continuum, clinics, healthcare entities, et cetera, like for individually for each child and bringing them together officially to denote them as a healthcare team. Home nurses, care managers, hospital folks, primary care specialists, everybody. And then if the child did have a, a bona fide, like recognized health home, then on the federal side, money would be allocated and given to the state on a 90 to 10 match. So if the state spends 10 cents, the feds would give an additional 90 cents per dollar, basically, to help give that health home money to help manage the care for these children. Over the two years that followed from the idea of this, this bill was gaining bipartisan support. Co-sponsors in the House and the Senate, it was going through the sausage making of the legislation, was scored by the Congressional Budget Office, was presented before the Health Subcommittee, the Energy and Commerce Committee. Early in the fall, draft legislation in the House and the Senate side of really getting the details right to go for a floor vote to see if this would actually go through and then change in leadership. And all of this now is sort of on hold, trying to get a sense of what the current Congress and our incoming president and vice president, our new department, deputy of health and human services, like how are they going to perceive children with medical complexity? Will they even think about them at all in the setting of thinking about the changes that they want to make to Obamacare, the changes that they're thinking about making to Medicaid, federal involvement in Medicaid, which may become less over time. So I'm really anxious to see sort of how this plays out over the next few months and years. Okay. So we covered a lot, but I hope that you walk away from here just being better informed about thinking about children with medical complexity sort of the State of the Union and what's happening with these kids across the country, thinking about their prevalence and impact on the healthcare system, different activities and approaches to managing their care, this relationship between providing high quality care and saving healthcare costs by keeping them out of the hospital and the emergency department, and state and federal healthcare policies that are out there to try to help them. More importantly, I just hope that you're motivated either from whatever standpoint you're coming from as an administrator or a clinician, researcher, policy person, quality improvement person, uh, generalist, specialist, like whatever, to do what you can to try to help these children and their families, because I really do think that they deserve it. And that, my friends, this 25th day of January is the State of the Union for Children with Medical Complexity. Thanks for your time. You know what's interesting? Um, the two, the two other countries that I think are doing this very well, well, Canada and Ontario, and then Victoria, um, Melbourne, Australia. 
And for instance, in the, in the, the Victoria model, the, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne sort of stood up all this care management stuff and then diffused it into the community. Um, and there's some super rural areas in Australia. Um, they, ended, they even ended up paying for educational curriculums for parents to be trained basically to become nurses, especially for the kids with long-term ventilation at home. When the state set this up, they said, you know what, we feel like this is so important for the kids that you don't have to show us that it saves money. So you're a line item in our budget. We're not going to cut it back for now. So go forth and do your work, but we don't even have to track, you know, at the end of the day, how much it costs. I mean, as long as you have enough money to run the program, great. Tell us if you don't. But you don't have to show all this cost savings and everything else down the road um, to show what the actual numbers are. Um, Ontario is kind of the same way, so it's fairly interesting, like, you know, the, fra the, the ethical framework of taking care for the children has sort of pressed ahead of show us the numbers, but from the U.S. side, we're like, we want to see the numbers. Give us the data so that we can figure out here how that would inform how we set things up here and how to lobby for it. Um, it's really hard to get to get the financial numbers. I, th I think the all-payer claims, you know, having healthcare claims across the continuum is great for the data. You know, when kids come for outpatient visits and the eating and all that stuff. But even with that, you truly don't get a sense of how much the care actually cost, like the true money that's needed to stand up, or even in primary care, how much the nurse practitioner cost, how much the additional time cost, like how are you paying the light bill, the computer systems, like that's just stuff. It's just not as forthcoming as I wish it was. Dr. College, um, has there been any work embedding community case managers and federally qualified health centers? FQHCs have a different funding stream through Medicaid. It's basically cost plus rather than based on individual CPT encounters. Um, it seems like it would be a wonderful opportunity to bundle costs together and have case management there. And particularly since federally qualified health centers have increased in number um, and density, at least throughout New England, that would seem to be a wonderful opportunity. Oh, man. Anybody who's working on that? What a great point. I've, I've not heard this come up much at all. And it may just be because I just don't know about it. Maybe it's actually out there. Um, but especially for the being on the federal level, right, it sort of transcends the state's ability to infuse. Exactly. And if it's a standard policy, then it could be layered everywhere. Wow. I'd love to follow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, those of you We'll give Tristan the last question, but um, some of us. So this is this is this is sort of my great white whale. If you haven't gotten the gist from Dr. Berry, how essential this is to a children's hospital, you haven't been paying attention. So some of us are going to um, at 915 gather with Dr. Berry and Ruben 692. If you want to join us, feel free to think about how we expand and enhance our complex care services for here at Chad. So um, if you continue down, you can join us or come down right now. And we'll let Trisha have the last question. My question, I, I'm a primary care provider, was just about um, finding enough um, home health aides and nursing, like we just don't have any. So it, I just don't know what work is being done or how we can fix that problem. That seems to be, like, that just really seems to be an overarching problem. I know that there is a parent group from New Hampshire and Mass who are currently working together to try to lobby the state, both states, to increase
payment for home nurses as, as one avenue. Of, I don't know if that's going to be the magic bullet to fix it. But as you know, I mean, it's just. It's not a living wage. It's not a living wage. And I don't know what you guys are experiencing here, but in mass, in our local area, it's usually nurses get this coming out of school as one of their first jobs knowing that they're only going to stay in this for 18 months until they find something better. They're, they're great and enthusiastic, but they don't have a lot of skills. It's overwhelming, you know, and it's just a constant churn of those, of those folks going through, and it's just not stable. Um, I wish there were other answers, but my goodness, if you're going to pay people, you've got to pay these guys. I mean, the work that they're doing is unbelievable. Yeah. We'll continue the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Dude. Other than the Jay, uh, 